The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Glory to you, Lord. Jesus also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Are there things that are actually right or wrong? Can we even say that anymore? Do you dare to say that anymore? Well, be careful if you do, because you might be called a self-righteous Pharisee. And as we see in our gospel lesson this morning, there is nothing worse than that. It is far better to think nothing of yourself and to make no judgments at all. That's what the man who beats his breast does, and he commends, or he is commended for it. Do not pass judgment on anyone else, only worry about yourself. Do not assume to know what is right or wrong. Basically, you must do everything in your power not to be a Pharisee. Well, I hope that you see some difficulties with that kind of language, something we actually hear quite a bit in the church these days. On the one hand, it does seem rather obvious in this passage that Jesus really does not want us to make judgments on other people. The Pharisee's the bad guy in this parable. But on the other, if we never make prudent judgments, do we all just end up as moral free agents with no standard to which we can appeal to know what is right or wrong? I mean, even the publican would have, or the tax collector, he would have gone to his home that day and made judgments still about what was right or wrong. Indeed, a common misreading of Jesus is to say that Jesus, in his very heart and soul, at the very center of his being, was one who would never pronounce judgment, one who only ever invited, oh, and one who only ever really had quibbles with religious authorities. That's a superficial reading of the New Testament, but a pretty common one. Of course, the main problem with it is that that just isn't what the New Testament says, Uh, Jesus did, in fact, judge. And when he did, you had better watch out. He says, for example, that Chorazin and Capernaum, it's going to be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for them because he went and did miracles in those towns and they rejected him still. He tells forgiven sinners not to sin anymore. He tells the crowds to repent. So it's not like judgment is ever off the table. Rather, we want to get judgment right. That's what the Pharisee doesn't do. To do that, we need to have uh, an understanding of some basic categories. 
and this might be somewhat pedantic, and that's why it's usually not preached about, and yet it's important for us to understand. For example, a very basic category distinction that all Christians need to be aware of and need to make is between justification and sanctification. I'm hopeful those words are familiar, uh, especially the word justification. It's the heroic theme of every Reformation Sunday, right? We recall the reading from Romans 3 or Ephesians 2 where Paul tells us that we are justified by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And what is justification? Well, justification is the declaration from God to you that your sins will not count against you. It's a wonderful thing. In the Western Christian tradition, we uh, argue that this is really legal language that Paul is using to uh, about a change that takes place within a person who claims Christ as Lord. Justification is about an objective. That means it comes from without. We, talk, we call it an alien righteousness for a reason. It's an objective change in the person, a change that allows God to see the person not as the sinner that they are, amazingly, but as who Christ has made them, right? When God looks at you, he doesn't see you. He sees Christ for you. And we should all know, of course, that we want to be seen by our, uh, you know, not by our own good works, but by the good works of Christ. Of course, the Pharisee went to the temple to be seen for his own good works. That was the problem. Now, what is sanctification? Well, in the Lutheran tradition, sanctification is sort of everything that happens after justification. We see justification as this moment of conversion, which forever changes our relationship to God. But as Luther points out, we still have this pesky paradox that we have to deal with, which is that we still sin. Well, how can that be? How can we be justified and yet still sin? Well, our justification is not an immediate change in our character. Rather, it's a change in how God sees us. Remember, he doesn't see us as a sinner. He now sees us through the life and works of Christ. But we remain sinners, though we have been justified. And yet, because we are justified, we now feel differently about our sins than we did before. We feel guilt or shame about our sins. We, we know that we need to confess them and to receive forgiveness for them. And we know that when they are forgiven, that we delight that they are, you know, they disappear as morning dew, as the psalm might say. And we can begin each and every day, as Luther might say, you know, die, a daily ri dying and rising in our baptism, right? So the shame of our sins no longer defines us. And so we're given by the Spirit this desire to grow in holiness. That's what sanctification is. Sanctus, holy, holy, holy. We say it every Sunday. We find ourselves possessing some new and strange desires, as we grow in holiness, as we grow in sanctification, like, gosh, I really would like to know what the Bible has to say. Uh, or, gosh, I really want to be in an accountable Christian community with other believers. Or something really strange might happen where you say, gosh, I'd really like to give more of my money away. You know, that's, that's when it gets really bizarre. 
You know, and one of the reasons I don't talk a lot about financial giving, and I certainly never hope to guilt or shame someone into it, is because when the Spirit is in the believer's life, it's something that becomes a joy, and it ought to be a joy. In fact, usually our only regret is that we can't give more of it away. We still have obligations that we rightfully need to mind. But you get the idea, right? All of a sudden, the law of God, which before your justification, you actually hated because of its accusatory power over you, now you love. Now you love the law of God. You you want to obey the law of God. You want to know what it actually says. You might even want to know what the law of God says that you don't even have to obey anymore, like, you know, the sacrificing of animals in the temple in Leviticus. That would even be interesting to you because it still reveals the character of God. And you find that it's an uphill battle, right, to be faithful to God and to obey the law, and yet you continue to have this encouragement and strength. And where does that come from? From the Holy Spirit himself. That is sanctification. And it will define your spiritual life until the day that you die. And then you will get the other ification. That's glorification. So you had justification, sanctification, glorification. But as a person seeking sanctification, will you not need to make judgments? Won't you have to, if we're being honest? Will you not need the law of God to steer you in the right direction? To know the difference between good deeds and bad deeds? And to grow closer to God? And won't you come to believe that those things that are good or bad for you to do or not do, would you come to believe that that is also true of others? For example, if you become convicted that it really is wrong to steal from your neighbor, Uh, doesn't it make sense that you would also come to the belief that it is wrong for your neighbor to steal from their neighbor? And if you come to such a rational and, dare I say, holy conclusion, because it's in accordance with God's law, does that make you a judgmental Pharisee who thinks that you're better than others? No, it does not. In fact, Jesus doesn't tell us never to judge. The most famous passage, of course, is Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Listen to what he actually says. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Right. So it's not that judgment can never be offered but rather the judgment that is offered ought to be done with the right understanding and a pretty big dose of humility. And that is what this story offers us today. It is the right understanding, the way we go about making prudent judgments. The problem with the Pharisee wasn't that Pharisees in principle thought that some behaviors were better than others, we would agree with the Pharisees about some behaviors. Really, the problem was that they added to the law of God. That's why when Jesus is always saying, you have heard it said, but I say, the you have heard it said is a reference to traditions that were not biblical, ways in which people added to the law. The problem with the Pharisees was that they believed ultimately that their behaviors would be the cause of their justification. 
Now, people will often say, well, Jesus never talked about justification. That's a Paul thing. Paul works that out later. And, of course, as I said, we read from Romans 3, for example. But actually, Jesus does talk about justification quite clearly, and he does it in this text. In fact, I think maybe this should be the text we use on Reformation Sunday. It's still a week off, but close enough. What does Jesus say at the end of this parable? He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So when it comes to our ultimate status, whether we are saved or doomed, justified we call it, we had better be beating our breast and trusting in God alone. For we are sinners and we cannot save ourselves and we rely wholly on God's mercy. And it is also true that the justified seek to live a holy life that pleases the one who justifies us. This requirement, or this requires rather, prudent and righteous judgments. And it doesn't make us a Pharisee to observe that. Staying on the right side of judgment and judgmental, or judgmentalism, is not always easy. And uh, as a Christian in the 21st century, even when you are totally on the right side, of that, you're still going to be called a Pharisee. You're still going to be called a, a judgmental hypocrite. You're going to be called some ugly names. That's just the way that it is. And yet we make prudent judgments because we love God and we love God's law. And we seek to be obedient to God's law. And we want that for everyone else too. Nothing wrong with any of that. We cross that line when we believe that it is our obedience that justifies Rather, our obedience is a fruit of our justification, not the cause of our justification. It's kind of the whole heart of the Reformation right there. An honest response to God's law, just if you walk through, say, the Ten Commandments for yourself, an honest response can only be to beat your breast and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What is so wonderful about God is that he hears that prayer. And he does indeed respond with mercy. He accepts us, Paul says in Romans 5, he dies for us while we are a sinner. Jesus will never hear this prayer and reject us. Only if we refuse this prayer do we risk losing fellowship with our God. Amen.